as soon as you think about it, it's like the little things that feel so big often don't matter as much. You're like, holy mm -hmm. cow, this life is finite. Like this life is beautiful and amazing. But like all these little things that like we all naturally tend to stress about are so small in the concept of things. And I think like actually like harnessing that, like I think it's truly a gift to be able to think about death that early and that young and to think about like how beautiful life is by itself. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's why every, like every spiritual system starts with that grounding, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, like, and even honestly, atheism, when you think about it, it's all grounded, like, you know, like humanist atheism type thing is all grounded right. in the same in the same perspective and i think it's not it's not that like oh you're thinking too much or anything like that it's oh you're just thinking about just enough this episode of the smart athlete podcast is brought to you by Solpre skincare for athletes whether you're in the gym on the mats on the road or in the pool we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body to learn more go to solpre.com Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guests today, this is the first time I've ever had two people on at the same time, so a very special episode. My guests today are the co-authors of The Happy Runner. You can see on YouTube, I've got a copy of the book. They are the founders of Team Swap, which stands for Some Work, All Play, where they are coaches, and they coach anybody between elite and amateur runners. Um, Megan in particular, is a medical doctor. David, although I think he likes to downplay a little bit, has his JD, so uh, ask him for legal advice. I'm sure we'll <laughs> legal disclaimer here in a second. Um, anyway, welcome to the podcast, David and Megan Roche. Hey, thank you so much for having us. We're so excited, and you definitely introduced us the right way. Megan, <laughs> Megan is the superstar of the operation, and I'm more, I'm more of the nuts and bolts guy. She's the ideal person. We're really pumped to be here, and also pumped that this is like a top half uh, YouTube interview because I'm, we're both wearing pajamas at the moment. That's true. <laughs> so, <laughs> so all of our all of our listeners can know that. <laughs> I'll have to remember for the future. Just be like. No, no, like you have to wear proper attire. It's going to be, you got to stand the whole time and get a full body shot. Like we need to know what's going on. Yeah. Like, like, like suit top half. And then you've got like boxers on the bottom half or something. That's my, that's my, uh, my go-to. And then when you need to go get a computer charger, it's always super awkward. Back up very slowly and only show my top half. So now this this kind of strikes me. I was having this conversation the other day with um, a group of people that work from home, but they work for hospital. Um, I work from home. I don't really get dressed, so to speak. Like, I don't put a suit on to get to work. I assume you guys do a lot of your work from home or, like, a pretty casual environment. Do you feel like you have to, like, get dressed for the day to get the right mindset, or can you work in pajamas? We actually have that discussion often, so I probably do – 25% of my work from home. And I would say all 25% of that work is done either with no pants or, <laughs> or pajamas. So we definitely don't have any very, like very formal rules about that. What's yeah. Your, well, I mean, I work almost solely from home and I'm pretty much universally no pants. No, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, um, I don't feel, really feel the need to, to segment those things because like the way we do it a lot of the times is like the way we coach, we try to check in with every athlete every day. So mm -hmm. we're pretty much always, within the world of like, it's not like we tune in, turn out, like we clock in, clock out so much. Right, right. So if we were wearing suits or something, it would be kind of awkward because it'd be like 5 a.m. On a, on a Tuesday and you'd be like, why are you in a suit right now? <laughs> <laughs> but this is my professional attire. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of have the feeling that like I get up, I'll start work often 15 minutes after I wake up because so I'm here in my office, my, my bedroom is essentially five feet away. And for me, if I got in a suit, I would almost be like, I'm going somewhere. I'm not in like work mode because it's all, you know, I don't get dressed up because I have nobody to impress here in the office besides you guys. There's a penguin um, in the background. <laughs> and then penguin. Yes. I think that's a penguin. Yeah. Penguin. That's a, a Christmas gift from last year for my girlfriend uh, for donating to the World Wildlife Foundation. You're impressing a penguin and an international nonprofit at the same time. <laughs> right. 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 I, I don't know what all you can see back there. I've got a beaver here. I won that oh beaver. God. I see some great board games back there. We might have to take you that, like a virtual life challenge. That beaver is creeping. <laughs> yeah, the beaver, yeah, the beaver right there behind my head. Yeah, that was um, uh, from a triathlon. or The first time I ever made money in a triathlon, uh, I placed third. It's called the Dam Try. And uh, it's because it has a dam as part of the run course. 
and they give out these like beaver trophies. They're a little bit different every year, but they hand make the trophies for their like top competitors. So I'm real proud of my my beaver my beaver trophy that hangs out in the background. And yeah, and all the board. Oh, hot games. jam! Yeah. That's what you needed to say to the beaver. I like it. <laughs> and the jam I feel like I feel like that beaver needs to tell all your neighbors like that it moves into the neighborhood or something. <laughs> Can't be within fifty feet of a school. <laughs> And that's it's a it's a possibility although you know we're in a relatively new neighborhood so maybe i should have done that as a as like a welcoming <laughs> hey welcome to the neighborhood. here's our beaver like <laughs> stay away from us <laughs> um so we'll kind of get into the book and i mean you cover this in the book but just for those listening if you have not picked up the book yet um why does it matter that runners are happy can't we just be like curmudgeons and try you know kind of trudge along and and do our thing so you know happy is used as shorthand in the book to essentially mean you have you're fulfilled you know you're content in your daily journey you like you understand your relation to the world and the existential questions because that's basically what being an athlete comes down to and being a runner comes down to is you're finding your way in the world and running is one of the ways you do that. So if you're not viewing it through that whole context, you're just setting yourself up for an existential crisis. It's, it might not be tomorrow, but it's coming. And so, yeah, th- what the happy runner just means is essentially like the runner that sees the big picture and zooms out a little bit and gets that like the the minutia of performance is not what leads to those good things. You know, it's thinking about these questions and being happy with being like self-accepting with who you are. There's also, so chapter four in the book, which I consider to be the most important chapter in the book, goes into mental health struggles and the relationship to that, to being a happy runner. And what we've seen working with athletes is that mental health struggles are so common. So many athletes struggle with depression, anxiety, eating disorders. And sometimes in the context of all of those things, waking up in the morning and being happy or, you know, living your best day is really challenging. And so we really make sure to emphasize that as well in the book is that it's really just coming back to knowing that you're enough no matter what. And sometimes that isn't necessarily happy within the framework of happy. And that is perfect too. Uh, yeah. I think that like, um, so I'm like trying to write notes at the same time. Um, I think the moniker happy sometimes is misleading. Um, I, I had this conversation with my, my friend Kevin and we were both pursuing our professional licenses in triathlon for quite some time. He came from a soccer background where he didn't quite make it as a professional soccer player. And I come from a background of just wanting to be enough. Um, And we kind of dealt with the, the difficulties of that journey, but also knowing that even professionals that he had spoken with kind of made friends with were like, you know, maybe they're not, happy on every day or they're not necessarily like having fun in the sense that like board games are fun like this kind of fleeting fun but there's a contentedness underneath because of the pursuit yeah well i mean i think that that can be true and for you know but it still needs to be examined right so um you know let's talk about triathlon just sorry i mean the book's not about that but you know we're talking about let's say elite triathlon performance where Mm. the athletes are doing 30 or 40 hours a week right you know that sort of thing can be sustainable for some but talking to people behind the scenes a lot they'll go into pretty severe depression when they leave the sport Mm -hmm. um, because you're essentially getting the rug pulled out from under you where or you see behind the screen where it's like oh wait what this purpose that i was putting on my life is actually you know it's fully coming from my own brain like it's awesome to have that's with everything so essentially what we're trying to get people to do is ask the questions and you know we what we came about it we were super fortunate in that we got to coach some of the best trail runners in the world you know people that won the biggest races in the world and you see that reaching finish lines doesn't change anything so um yeah we just wanted to emphasize that like you know through that whole process you can be enough no matter what you're doing and no matter what you achieve and no matter how much you can train you know because injuries happen too so yeah, that's kind of where we were coming at. 
And I really like thinking about it from the idea of having a flexible purpose. So I'm a very purpose-driven person. Like I need to wake up in the morning and feel like I'm working towards something. And that's really what drives me to get up at 4 a.m. and like get out of bed excited to put on my pajamas and go through my workday. Um, but I think for me, like over time, I've realized that I've had to be flexible in that purpose. So like, for example, like if you get injured as a runner, it's like, you know, my purpose shifts to becoming the best that I can be on the bike. And I think that like being flexible in that is what translates to happiness in the long term is being flexible in your goals is goal setting with is goal setting with that purpose in mind and that flexibility overall. So I'm kind of curious how you approach. I almost see it as a dichotomy. I had troubles with this myself. Like I said, since I you know spent all this time trying to become a professional and didn't quite make it. And I, I've kind of, I mean, from a personal standpoint, the last 18 months kind of been almost, floundering trying to figure out well, what now what you know what am i doing so it's it's kind of you know um i want to say poignant or very well timed that i'm speaking to you guys and have the book um you know how do you balance the idea or the internal struggle about i am enough and also finding new goals to focus on and, and chase after without those you know consuming that idea that if i don't get them i'm not enough so, I mean, I think all self-improvement has to start from a place of loving and accepting yourself because you're just going to find that when you lose 30 pounds or, you know, succeed at business or become a professional, you still have whatever you brought into that. You know, like if you're doing it from a place of I need to prove something, you're never going to prove that, you know, um, your, your best will never be enough unless it's always enough. And so starting from that place is the key we found with athletics too, not just for psychology. I mean, we always frame it in that, that aspect because it's easy, but at the end of the day, I don't even care if someone buys into the psych part of it. I want them to do it for the performance element of it. And I think that's been the key with swap developing such a big pro team is essentially you do this, you take off those constraints, you let yourself believe you're not afraid of failure. And then every single workout, every single run can come with a little bit less of the the things that are weighing you down. Um, and yeah. Yeah. I think for me, what that translates to logistically is setting both short-term and long-term goals. So I think it's helpful to have those really big, scary goals about, Hey, like this is the race I want to win in three years and making sure that you prioritize training and make the difficult life decisions surrounding those big goals, but to also have daily life goals too, as kind of, of metrics of getting you there, but also as like these check marks to be like, Hey, like, look what I did today. This is awesome. But not feeling defined by those either. Like, you know, we're never perfect in reaching our goals. And so understanding that. Um, and then I think also just making sure the goals are all mostly internally driven. Um, so doing this, like making sure you're writing down and coming to the conclusions that you're doing this for an internal reason, as opposed to an external reason, like beating someone or proving something to someone. It's like, it should really be coming from within. Mm -hmm. Um, have you guys worked with, so, I mean, working with elite athletes is obviously awesome. And I know you work with amateurs as well. Have you worked with people that are going through that transitional period um, age-wise where there is no, no more up, it is just down and it, it, it as a physiological impossibility, like, you, you know, there is a point for everybody, whether it's earlier or later where you simply can't keep up with the clock of time. Have you, you know, worked with people going through that transition and, and kind of dealt with that, not like psychology kind of hands-on, not just in yourselves, but like with somebody else? Yeah, I mean, I think that that question gets to the very core of why being an athlete can lead to these deeper thoughts. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like when you're thinking about aging, I mean, if you're paying attention closely enough to your body, you start feeling that process very early. Um, and that doesn't mean you can't reach your, you can't improve, improve, improve. It just means that like after 21, you're starting to feel little incremental things and as you get a little older, and then as you go, you know, as you start to hit your 40s and 50s and beyond, you really start to see that, that transition. And you can, if your brain thinks about it even a little bit, which it does, even if you're not thinking about it um, super explicitly, you can plot out where that regression line ends, right? Mm -hmm. Like athletics gives you a window into your fragility that normal people probably don't get until maybe like a midlife crisis or something like that. And so with that in mind, like what we try to do is talk about that stuff early and often and uh, divest athletes from results outcomes and get them to like whatever the process entails in like a day-to-day -day of an athletic life. So 
I never, ever want an athlete training just because they think they are going to get faster and faster. I want them training because they enjoy the life it gives them on each little day. And then that adds up to a greater whole. So with the athlete that's aging, what I'm like is like, look, you know, yeah, we might have to reorient goals a little. We can still strive. We can still push it. But what I want us to focus on is, okay, what do we love? Like when you're 60, you might not necessarily want to do 100 mile weeks as a runner anymore. You might want to start working biking and yoga and all this other stuff. And then we'll go crush races. But um, essentially reorienting it from the very beginning, from maximizing every possible element of performance to maximizing the amount of joy that you can get within the context of a life that's meaningful to you. And so, yeah. I think layered on top of that, I was having a discussion with a runner last night about this, is that running is such a cool sport because it's one of the only sports I know that has age categories for performances and for competitions. And it's kind of fun to think about aging. So it's like, you know, all of a sudden I might transfer from that 50 to 59 age group up into the 60 to 65 age group. And just like understanding where you are within the context of that. And, um, you know, I, I think it's a beautiful thing that we can continue to compete as runners, um, you know, into our 80s and 90s if we want to. And just appreciating the beauty of all that, the beauty that this is a lifetime sport. Um, and, you know, just sharing that with the community and others around you. And I mean, the reason the book starts talking about death is just that, like, it's so ever present. And if you're not able to like come to terms with that, at least to a certain extent, I mean, all this crap is hard and not just running, like literally everything that you care about is crumbling to dust slowly. So, I mean, it's a good thing to think about. It's a good thing to try to be able to laugh at. And what we try to do is talk about it really openly with everyone, even though we're not spiritual leaders or whatever, just so that we can get this like shared experience, maybe laugh a little bit on the way. I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned it because I was just getting ready to. I'm glad that the book kind of starts on the framing of death, and which sounds a bit morbid. Um, but I'm, I'm glad just in the sense that I think a lot of my own personal pursuits and a lot of people, you know, over the years have said in part, how are you so motivated? Why, you know, why do you try so hard and all these things? A little bit I, is maybe genetic, but also... I mean, I think I've been thinking about death since I was a teenager and not just in the sense that like I, I won't be alive, but thinking about, you know, my parents and, um, you know, and my own life in knowing cognizantly, even if even if I don't know internally and, and, and maybe this doesn't make sense to you. I'm kind of in I guess I'll ask if this makes sense. But you know, there's like two kinds of knowings where like you learn something in a book and you know it. And then something where you know it just internally, like as so as people age, I think they become more aware internally. My life is finite. So I started from a place of definitely earlier on being cognizantly aware, like in my own mind. Okay, I'm not going to live forever. Like, you know, it, it could be tomorrow. You know, I had friends die, you know, throughout. I think a lot of high, people in high school have at least one classmate die. And, and knowing what could be me, and it kept me motivated. But anytime I spoke to people about that and I said, you know, guys, like, we're not going to be here forever. You've got to get to work if you're going to get your, you get your, you know, shit together, basically get things done, the things you want to do. It was always a matter of like, why are you so weird? Like, why are you <laughs> talking about that? And I'm like, maybe you'll get it eventually. I know I certainly at this point, I'm, 30 this year, getting ready to be 31 next year or next month. And uh, little aches and pains creeping in and like kind of <laughs> feeling my age, so to speak, knowing a little more intuitively, like, you know, time is not infinite for us. Did you come to that, those thoughts? I mean, if you're comfortable sharing. When no, you no, were... yeah, yeah, it's fine. No, I'm, I'm pretty well open book. Um, I think for me, I always said that... I have the both up and down side. I have an older father. So like I'm only 30. My father's in his late 70s now. So even though, you know, kids aren't aware of like age in the same aspect, but I always knew my, my dad was a lot older than everybody else's dad, basically. So I think that kind of put it in the frame of mind for whatever reason to start with me from an early age. Like he's not going to be around forever. And I know for a long time I was motivated about like, I, you know, I want my dad to be proud of me. 
So it's kind of a combination of those things together with just there's kind of a I guess I'll say like a family trait almost that like the men in my family are competitive and it's not I don't know that it's a culture thing like we kind of all do our own things but we all come by this kind of competitiveness and the strive naturally um so I think it's kind of an influence of those things in terms of motivation but I attribute it to my father being older than kind of other parents as I was growing up I mean it's super interesting it is really interesting I think actually the recognition of death and like thinking about it and processing it is actually very rare in young people and actually is even rare in old people. I I actually need to like get a formal statistic on that, but very few Mm -hmm. people actually think about that, which I think is interesting. And I think actually thinking about it is powerful because as soon as you think about it, it's like the little things that feel so big often don't matter as much. You're like, holy Mm -hmm. cow, this life is finite. Like this life is beautiful and amazing, but like all these little things that like we all naturally tend to stress about are so small in the concept of things. And I think like actually like harnessing that, like I think it's truly a gift to be able to think about death that early and that young and to think about like how beautiful life is by itself. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's why every, like every spiritual system starts with that grounding, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, like, and even honestly, atheism, when you think about it, it's all grounded, like like humanist atheism type thing is all grounded in the same, in the same perspective. And I think it's not, it's not that like, oh, you're thinking too much or anything like that. It's, oh, you're just thinking about just enough. Like, you know, the old, um, <laughs> it's hard, it's hard to like, you know, the old, if you look at the earth from the moon, it's like, whatever, like what, and so viewing yourself from that same place mm-hmm. gives you that like stoic ability to hopefully be able to find contentedness in everything and also be comfortable going for it. It doesn't mean that you're not trying. It means that you are trying, you are doing, like your interpretation of it, I think is beautiful. And one I haven't really heard before. It's like, I need to do all these things before I go as opposed to none of these things matter. Um, and I think that's super cool. Right, you can definitely veer towards nihilism where you're like, nothing, but I, I'm sure I've been there before where it's like, why am I doing any of this? I, none of it matters. I, my, um, my friend and business mentor, we, uh, I, I basically say he's like the 60 year old version of me. Um, <laughs> although he doesn't look it cause he, he runs, he takes care of himself. And, uh, you know, he says, yeah, none of it matters. So you are the one that gets to imbue meaning on it. It puts a lot of, it puts the onus on you and a lot of responsibility on your shoulders, which can be crushing, but it can also be freeing in the sense that, yeah, none of it matters. Like I don't have any external validation to meet. It's all up to me to decide what's important. I think Megan, you were kind of touching on that earlier, basically that, that internal locus of control where you're like, I control the things you know that matter to me, and and I do things that are you know internally motivated instead of, you know, I want to have a gold medal or a beaver trophy or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that point is really interesting, and I've actually noticed that for myself. Um, and then athletes that I work with who might be more driven or maybe prone to or towards anxiety, that thinking about that and coming at that with the lens of like, oh, maybe these little things don't matter as much is what gives them the meaning to like go and take failures and take risks. And so it's almost like that it's kind of like that gateway that you can get to really putting yourself out there and getting to that place of like, oh my gosh, I want to do everything sort of situation. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I think it's the most empowering thought process you can have. And the reason we try to talk about it all the time is like, if you have that, that understanding of the impermanence of things, you can also give yourself the grace to just be, I'm freaking awesome the way I am right now. Like no matter what that means. And from there, you can then take risks. You can fail. You can, you can strive. You can do all these things without having it impact that, like that core value, that core thing of like, you know, finding the goodness in things and, and all that. So, yeah, I mean, like it's almost a cop out in some ways because like all this stuff is way more complicated, but for us, essentially what we say to athletes and like in the previous e- in the previous email that in our previous email ended up becoming the book was your stardust with delusions of grandeur have that give you the strength and the the power to like you know put yourself out there and not worry too much about what comes of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and I, I think it seemed like almost constantly through the book you kind of almost try to redress yourself in terms of like saying, okay, I know this sounds really woo woo, but. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so you have, have like, have you dealt with 
any any kind of I guess I'll say backlash. That's a little dramatic, but you know what I mean. Like a backlash for that kind of approach instead of like being super scientific and everything's quantitative and we are going to measure absolutely everything. You know, have you gotten any like I guess haters or negative feedback for that? Yeah, we've definitely had our share of haters. I think actually, I, honestly, like if you put yourself out there, I think anyone's going to have yeah. haters. There's like a percentage out there, like 10% of the people in the world are going to hate you no matter what. Right. I th- I think and then, like the more that you build your following, the more that 10% becomes in terms right. of a pure whole number. So um, we've definitely had our fair share of haters. It's actually been interesting. I don't look at Amazon reviews. David does. Um, and so, I try to stay away from them. I try to stay away from them anymore for like any of the products I bring out. Like I'll look at them every once in a while, but it's so much easier to focus on the negative one and be like why don't they like it like i want them to like it (laughs) well it's so interesting like i mean it gets to everything like so that being a good example of you know someone being like oh it changes my life and then one person being like this is the worst book i've ever read and it's the same book right and um you know that gets back to everything i think in life like if you had amazon reviews on us as people it would look the same way where it's like hopefully we'd have 90 percent five stars but there would <laughs> definitely be some one stars and <laughs> you know i think that all we all die thing also comes with that that turnaround which is like you know you're not going to be on the same page as everyone else and that's okay like um i like what, what pete holmes says about stuff like the comedian pete holmes says about stuff that like a movie he doesn't like or whatever he says it's just not for me and I, I accept that I am not for other people too. Like we're not for other people. And, um, you know, just because someone doesn't share our approach, that doesn't mean they're wrong at all. Um, it just means that, you know, we might not be getting a drink at the bar. Well, I think when we sat down to write that book, our number one goal was to stay authentic to who we are. Mm-hmm. So we were only going to publish a book that we felt like was in our voices, was authentic to who we are. And it made it actually a lot easier to write the book because it was like, when we were editing, it was like, is this us? Is this authentic? And, um, as a result, like it was just really fun to put out there. But it's, I would wonder actually, like if you would have a higher percentage of haters, if you weren't authentic to yourself, you know, it's like, it's, I'm like fascinated by, I'm sure there's like statistics out there on that. I'm fascinated by that concept. Probably depends on who you are. That's true. That's very if true. You were, yeah. If you weren't authentic, probably worse. <laughs> if I wasn't authentic, probably better actually. You know, it's, there's almost, I've, I've had people that, um, and this isn't the entrepreneur community, but people that are almost like, um, you need to do things like this particular has to do with the marketing messages. You need to do things so that people don't like you. Like, <laughs> you need to make it polarized because if there are people that don't like you, there's going to be people that really like you. If you try to please everybody, you end up in this like weird, lukewarm. People are just like, yeah, they're okay. You don't, you know, <laughs> you don't want people to be like, the book was okay, right? Yeah. You want those like, that changed my life, and then. Other people just be like, that was the dumbest thing I've ever read. Like, <laughs> you've got to have that divergence if you you know ha- want to have those high ones. And yeah, I think that probably applies to our coaching too. Yeah. Like, you know, um, especially at first, I would say that there was a lot, there was a fair amount of pushback within like the community. And by again, like the pushback there is being vocal, so you hear it more and you're just more tuned to it because that's how our brains work. Um, but it's, I mean, I haven't heard anything recently and that's actually nice because I think in general, like the, the message we're trying to push is like, it's not one of right or wrong. It's just one of like, no matter what you think you're right. So I think people are starting to get a little bit more accepting of that, at least in our Mm -hmm. little edge of the world, because we're not trying to say that someone that disagrees with us is wrong. We're just trying to say like, you know, this is what works for some of the people we are around and know like it's definitely not for everyone i mean we'll ask like before we coach someone we ask like a million questions trying to get at that like is this for them um and so yeah that's kind of where we're coming from it almost seems like um i've kind of ascribed to this philosophy i think for longer than college but it came to a point where i could actually um describe it as essentially utilitarianism like the the harm principle like you do your thing. If you're not harming anybody else, like whatever, you know, no big <laughs> deal. It's okay. I, I kind of, I think you guys probably are taking a kind of similar approach. Like this works for us. This works for a lot of people we know. We also know it's not going to work for everybody and that's fine. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, whether it's John Stuart Mill or Kant or like 
But right it was, up, yeah, or, it was, it you was know, Mill we got into in, or in Tim college, Ferriss yeah. or whatever. Like, I mean, everyone's kind of saying the same things, I think, at the end of the day, you know, um, just with different packaging. Yeah. Um, and the packaging that we wanted to adopt, you know, on like, again, we have no new ideas. It's just essentially like you are loved. Like you, where you are right now, you are so loved. And so, you know, just take that and apply it to athletics as much as possible. Um, since that that might be a place where it doesn't always apply because you do have times, you do have pro cards, you do have um, you know aging and all these other things. So um, we're just like, yeah, you're you're always loved, and like as a community, we hopefully can like build that up more and more over time, and then it just makes everything else seem a little less dark and scary. I think getting back to the hater thing that I just want to comment on real quickly is that like, even though we're so nonchalant about it and we make fun of like, you know, some of the haters that we do have or like the one star reviews, it still does hurt a little bit. And I think like, oh, yeah. yeah. And I think like that's a natural human emotion and we're like, we're totally fine with that. And like, I think the more practice you have, the less it hurts. It hurts for like two seconds as opposed to like a whole day. Um, but I think like, even though we're so nonchalant about it, like, you know, we're still human and it still hurts. Oh, she's more nonchalant than I am. She's better <laughs> at this than I am. I I'm the one that like, internalizes things and like still feels bad about a tweet someone sent three years ago or something. So yeah, it's all, it's all trying to, trying to grow a little bit. So I, I talk about this with some people, um, depending on, you know, kind of what our topics are, but do you, is the happy runner basically laying out what you believe the purpose of sport is? I think it's, for me, it's laying out the purpose of sport for some individuals. Okay. So I think the philosophy, it kind of, this kind of gets back to the last discussion that we were having. I think the philosophy in the book is powerful for individuals who may be highly driven, who may struggle with anxiety, who um, are looking to like enjoy the process. I think the happy runner for building a world champion, Olympic level athlete may not be the best philosophy. I, would you agree with that, David? I think it depends. It depends. Okay, it depends. I think like it's so dependent on the person. I mean, and I think it gets back to what you were saying before with your, you were saying drive runs in the family. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's so intuitive. So Megan, in addition to all the things she does is it works, she's doing a PhD in that overlaps with genetics and she's working in a genetic startup. And essentially the more we learn about genetics and I'm paraphrasing everything she's taught me here, is right. we learn that so much of this, this stuff that seems like it's a choice, seems like it's character and all these other things is something that's semi-programmed and we can change a little, but you know, the athletics is the same way. So I would disagree slightly on that for the first time ever. And just say that- I had a feeling I saw your face yeah. and I was like, I should probably check in with you on this one. <laughs> well, that the marble finds its groove or whatever, yeah. you know, where those types of athletes are like, it's because of the parents that they have. Yeah. And from there, yeah, you add things on top of that, whether that's like an obsessive drive or, you know, in unfortunate cases, doping and, and things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, I would just say that like that same reasoning applies to all of us. So, you know, you strive, but strive with the understanding that it's not a question of how hard you work. It's not like a race isn't being like, who this is, person is the toughest of all. Like the, It's like, no, a lot of this is out of your control. Um, and so I would say that that is kind of a philosophy on sport generally too, which is a lot of this is out of your control. And with that context, like make sure you love every day, make sure, or by love, not necessarily enjoy, but it, it's something that, you know, you would, you're doing not because of external validation. Um, and from there, yeah, then you can bring the, you know, bring, lift everyone up and things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that basically like the message of the book I would say is, cut yourself and cut others so much slack and you know from there then you can open up the door to like loving others and things like that i i um i'm trying to remember so before we got going for the recording got going we we're talking about uh mike Hagedon, who who i had on a previous episode is who said i should speak with you guys and i feel like i spoke with mike about this but i i could be wrong because i think i've spoken to several people who are in, into ultras and I almost, you guys may have some insights into this um, from the people you work with. I almost feel like, you know, we could probably learn more from the people that are the last people finishing an ultra versus the people that win the ultras. Because, you know, I, I think I said at that time, whatever interview it was, when they start, 
they're I would say 90% of the time they know they're not going to win. Like they're not out there to win. And there's some kind of deeper insight they have about why they're out there and what's driving them besides I want to be on the podium. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when you start to delve down into that, um, it becomes a complex question. I mean, I would, I would say that, you know, from like what we try to say to everyone is that you're all an everyone is an elite athlete, as long as you're pursuing your potential in the context of a life that's meaningful to you. Like, so that's our caveat. And within that framework, we find that everyone pretty much gives what they have and goes through similar things. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe some of the motivations are different, but like we're trying to push everyone to be the same motivation, which is like, you know, you're you're exploring meaning as it relates to you on that day, trying to make stories, trying to laugh at yourself and learn from failure and all those other things. Um, so yeah, we try not to differentiate too much based on like whether someone's at the front or the back or whatever, um, because we're trying to say, you know, it only matters insofar as like our marketing or whatever, <laughs> or like their personal brand. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. as so like how you feel about yourself or what the experience feels like. Yeah, their experiences are almost nearly the same. It's like everyone gets equally nervous before races. Like everyone struggles to sleep the night of races. Like everyone has these like major um, like existential crises and self crises of self. And it's like we all go through the same things, whether you're like the very front of the race or back of the race. And like honestly, the goal setting is pretty similar too. Yeah. Um. So I think as coaches, that has been really interesting. And as coaches, we actually really prioritize taking on a diverse group of athletes. So we coach some very top athletes, and then we coach athletes too who are just starting out in the sport. And I feel like we learn equally from all of those athletes and and that's been a fun process for us so i think that kind of it almost begs the question that i think it makes perfect sense that we all kind of go through similar struggles and at times i think the i'll say the elite uh runners often get almost shrouded in mystique where like they're superhumans and they you know they can do things that the rest of us can't but i think you guys no, even though you're, you know, obviously ascribing a different message and trying to promote a different message that often culturally we focus on the winners. Those are the people that are important to pay attention to. Why do you think we focus on those winners as a, as a culture? Oh, I mean, that's just, it. you know, it's, it's all about the stories that are being told. And so the winners or whatever, I mean, there is that competitive aspect where it's like, like sports games, you know, you or like basketball or whatever, you're playing to see who scores the most points. Like, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the Bucks, the Milwaukee Bucks, it is a meaningless, uh, you know, definition. Like, why <laughs> Milwaukee? Why the Bucks? You know what I mean? But we're still like, it's this story that's fun to follow, fun to root for, interesting. And I think running's the same way. It's interesting. It's fun to the people that are following it. It, it gives these narratives that add meaning to their lives and are interesting to follow. And so it's like a fan thing. But I think what we saw pretty early on is, you know, like we're fortunate to see the lives of some of these people shrouded in mystique behind the scenes. And, you know, they're going through everything you can imagine. And that that fanhood or or that support they have really doesn't add anything, like unless it's true and personal, like it doesn't it just adds pressure. It doesn't necessarily add joy and meaning and self-love. And so that's why we're just focusing on self-love. And so that those stories from the front front of the pack, I think they're awesome because it is like you know it's fun it's it's really fun to follow i'm i'm a fan of claire gallagher for the same reason that i like watching basketball you know mm-hmm. um but i think when you're talking about the individual person whether it's you know giannis antetokounmpo or claire it's like their happiness and the bucks or claire's performance like whatever you know um, so that's kind of where I think about. my impression too is that trail running is kind of bucking that tide a little bit. So I think in trail running, it's like it's still a pretty small bean sport in terms of like NBA basketball. Like no one's yeah. no one's on a million dollar contract in trail running. Like let's be right. right. Um, okay. And I think as a result, like it is more story centric, and I think it's more story centric across the board. And I think that people who are creative, people who are engaging, people who are involved in the community have these amazing voices that add to it. And, you know, we've seen, I've worked with some like diverse runners who have really like brought in the diversity into the community and made that a story. And um, it's a beautiful thing. And so I think, I think that's the power of running. And I think like inherent in that is just the fact that we're all like trudging through woods and mountains. And it's like, it's hard to take yourself seriously when you're doing that in the process. Definitely. Yeah. 
So I, I'm going to dive a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole. Um, so, you know, we're talking about like the, basically the stories that are being told. And, and, and part of that is like the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are that helps drive us. Um, but I kind of wonder, this is the part where we dive off the edge. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wonder about earlier, you know, I mentioned that my, my business mentor and friend often says there is no meaning. So we imbue meaning upon our own lives. But I also sometimes struggle with, is there, you know, a, a larger meaning to life? And I want to kind of get your thoughts on if the purpose of humanity and the existence that we live is to create. So meaning of life, Megan. Oh, You're shit. up. <laughs> 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 um, so, I mean, I think it could be. I, I think that, you know, again, it all depends on personal framework, spiritual background and things like that. But I think that if there is a pressure to create as a meaning, that also derive like pushes against what we're trying to say of like, you know, from this inherent, you know, quadrillions of atoms all bumping against each other in semi-random ways, like, you know, from that you can find self-love and acceptance. Like, I think if we're saying you have to, like, if creation is, is an element of that, then yeah, maybe that's supported by like spiritual frameworks, but maybe you look at the universe and you're like, well, we got infinite expansion going on here and it's all going to cool to nothing. So, but yeah, so I, I think like essentially, I don't know. I would say that creation is, 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 it's really interesting to think about. And maybe that's like a, you know, the spiritual end, like the, what we're looking with, not what we're looking for is creation. I could see that. I mean, I'd love to hear what you have to say. In fact, I should have asked that first. Um, so like, <laughs> okay. So what, are, what are you thinking when you're saying that? Okay. So let me explain a little bit more. And, and, and you guys fit in this framework, which is why I, I went there. So <laughs> philosophically, when I'm thinking about um, like entrepreneurial ventures or like trying to make money, you know, some people will frame it in the context of like, if I make money, I'm stealing from you, right? That's a very negative, like bad way to frame it. Um, and I don't think it's true. Whereas I think of it as when, like, say like in this context, when a transaction takes place, I have given you more value than it requires for you to give me in the form of money. Money is just stored value. So in essence, I have created more than I have received for that transaction to take place. That being said, to come from that place where you're saying, I'm creating value, you are coming from a place where you are trying to build up and create something out of nothing. You know, products, software, software in particular, software is almost like magic because you're writing code and you're you're making something happen that didn't exist before just because you're using your brain. There's no like, there's almost, I'll say there's no physical thing involved. That's obviously not entirely true since we have computers. <laughs> but I'm coming from the place where basically I think you guys come from a place of love and trying to share that with people. And there is a creative, and I don't mean creative in an artistic sense, but creative in the building up sense of allowing people to become more than they were previously when you come from that place of love and you're trying to not just make them better runners, but make them better people. I think that's part of your aim. I mean, you're welcome to correct me. Um, it, so that's what I think of humanity as a creative process and the purpose as a creative process, not necessarily because there is a, a big M Plato and big M meaning, but because that is somewhat inherent in our existence that when we get together as a society, as a culture, and we create together and give value to each other, that we all become more because of that process. 
that's kind of where I'm coming from. That's interesting. So I think for me, I think about like value and the creative process as kind of all being in the eyes of the beholder. So I think that's like a very, I think for everyone that process looks very different. And for some people it might be like, maybe you're the checkout person doing groceries and the value and the creative process that you're adding to the world is smiling at every single customer that comes in and making jokes and being that like the life of the grocery store and being that awesome person. And so I think it's like, it's truly about giving your full authentic self to the world in a way that lifts other people up. And that's where that like collective creativity comes in. It doesn't have to be like these like personal actions or like these to-do lists or like these like set products that get released to the world. It's just about like creating love and joy and building up other people in that process. Yeah. And I mean, I think the hard part here is like, we haven't found transcendence, you know, in, in there are people that describe what transcendence feels like to them, whether that's like Jesus or, Buddha, or it's like the, you know, I don't want to butcher the names, um, but the more new age, the more new age type things, or even the people that have like hallucinogenic experiences or whatever. And they almost all are, are trending towards this idea of like oneness, whatever that means to them individually. And so I think that that creation and like the the giving in, in that element is inherent in all those things. And the fact that it does overlap across all these different backgrounds is so cool and interesting. Um, and I don't think anyone really gets gets it fully unless you fu- like had that, you know, unless you're like a, like one of those beings that has had that moment. And, you know, so it's it's super cool because we're all trying to talk about something that can only be explained in metaphors, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where that's where like what we try to do is instead of telling people how to feel necessarily, we're just trying to be like, hey, just know that this is all a metaphor. Like. And from there, you can derive the own mean- your own meaning to the mystery or whatever. And we're not going to give you that because we don't know it at all. Um, and so I love the idea of creation because my guess is that's how it manifests to an entrepreneurial spirit like you. Like that's where that's where you find it. Um, and it might be your descri- how you describe the same thing that Megan's saying at the checkout counter. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, well, so I talk about this sometimes too. And I ask people... Like, do you speak another language? Often no, but um, it, if you learn another language, and I, I guess I'll say I'm passable in French, um, you kind of begin to understand a different way to look at things because the way our language is structured is part of the lens in which we view the world and communicate with each other. So like, German is a good example. There's tons of words in German that are very, very specific to a very specific situation and feeling that we just don't have in English. (laughs) So we have to like fumble around and try to describe that experience without a word. So it almost forces your perception into a particular box, depending on which language you speak, because you don't have the tools available to you to describe those nuances sometimes. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, that, that reminds me of like the Michael Pollan book about hallucinogens or, you know, I like we've never done them. Maybe we should with all this talk. But um, I, yeah, I keep thinking that I'm like, I'm generally I'm per, like pretty anti-drug. Like I don't I drink don't drink soda. I pretty much don't drink alcohol. And I'm like, maybe I should do mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> I have stories. They cause like mass amounts of vomiting sometimes. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. Sometimes. Yeah. But um. <laughs> I think we should give hallucinogens to Congress. That might <laughs> that might help. Um, but no, like, you know, one thing that's interesting in coaching is you get windows into a lot of people's lives. And over time, you can often build pretty close relationships, like lots of intimacy. And sometimes when like, when people just seem to get it, like whatever it is in a way that even like I would, I would strive to, I'll ask them that and like, oh yeah, I, I definitely, I had some, you know, hallucinogens back in my day or whatever. Uh, and I think that's so fascinating because it's probably the same idea, right? That for, it obviously varies by the person and experience, but some people have these experiences where it lets them escape the constraints of the language we know of like the language of, you know, being a meat sack essentially. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so it, it's funny because I feel like what we're trying to do is, um, translate things we've heard third hand and apply it to athletics so you know it gets complicated sometimes to describe it in a way that's super actionable Mm -hmm. um so i'm not saying take mushrooms but i am saying uh read you know (laughs) read read what really smart people have to say on these issues like (laughs) listeners not to you um because i think like 
the 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 thing to find there is not like this is the answer. The thing to find there is that not knowing the answer is the answer. And so um, that's kind of the journey we try to we try to use athletics as the lens through which we can help people on. Um, and so, yeah. I like that. Yeah, thank you. I needed that. I was like, please, please be okay. Please be okay. <laughs> it it kind of reminds me of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, metaphor. There's a metaphor in Buddhism about um, that the, the lesson is the finger pointing to the moon, not the moon itself. Like it, people get wrapped up in the metaphor and thinking that that is the lesson. It's like, no, it's just showing you where the lesson is. I can't show you the actual lesson. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I totally, totally agree. And I, ma I imagine that's how all teaching works. All, you know, whether you're like how a good CEO needs to work and, you know, all that. And I think the hardest thing in coaching in particular that we've, I think both had to learn over time is that you're not in control. You're not trying to micromanage someone's lives. Like it's the opposite of what Alberto Salazar did with his athletes. That's the idea of a bad coach, even right. though they had results for whatever reason, like that is someone that tried to ex explore every little thing, control it and manipulate it. And as a result, ruined people yeah i was gonna say that i think that's that micromanagement is only possible in the short term so again in the long term it's like impossible to control all those things or it's like it's so against the nature of the human that they like ultimately explode um and so i think like i think that's really like a short-term results focused oriented mindset yeah you guys explore this in, in the the book and i actually um funny enough i I had this, you know, we had this interview coming up. I didn't even necessarily put the two together, but I just did a video on um, why run. Mm -hmm. And I often talk about, I, I use the metaphor about it's a bag of whys. It's the best way I've, I've <laughs> come to describe okay. it. Like you need more than a singular why to define how you do it. But um, do you guys have like a practice you go back to when one why is not, you know, not fulfilling you anymore? And you're like, you know, that why is not very strong anymore. Do you have something concrete that you go to or do you just kind of let another why organically come to you or, or your athletes, I guess? I and mean, we like people to think about it really explicitly as much as possible, just because it gets back to the same discussion we're having that, you know, these unexamined questions, it's not that you can ignore them. It's that if you ignore them, it all just blows up in your face eventually. Um, so you're just pushing it, put, kicking the can. So yeah, we just like athletes to have this why that's grounded in like internal positive reasons, like internal self-love oriented reasons. Like, and so what we really try to motivate is a why that's focused on like the day-to-day -day process is one that you choose because of the type of person it lets you be. Um, because I think running for running to feel good or whatever is a terrible reason to run because running freaking sucks sometimes. Um, and you know, often it sucks. And, um, so it has to be for reasons that might like also, um, accommodate like the fact that it is really not, it's difficult sometimes it's super difficult sometimes. So, um, you know, I think both of us have whys that are really grounded in like, you know, uh, you know, it lets us have these loving thoughts. It lets us, like, it lets us turn down the volume inside our heads a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, I mean that, like, that's where it comes from for us, but even if it's not that something that like does a similar mechanism, you know, that adds to your life rather than subtracts and adds unconditionally. And I think getting back to that point, I think it's really helpful to like have a good understanding of who you are and feeling authentic in that process. But I also think just trusting your intuition. It's like, like for me personally, I know that I'm happiest when like things are lighthearted, things are funny, there's a lot of comedy and humor. And so it's like a lot of my why goals are focused on finding that lightness. It's like focused on like laughing at myself, laughing at the situation. And I think, um, I think once I have that framework for what truly makes me happy, what lights my soul on fire, it's a lot easier to then say, Hey, this is my why this is what I want to be doing. Yeah. I mean, we encourage athletes like to take their phones on runs just so that they're always able to take photos. Like as weird as that little why is like, it just engages you with what you're doing a little bit and it starts and to play space jam. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and play the space jam, jam soundtrack all time. On, great. On repeat. On repeat. <laughs> um, but yeah, like th things like that, like, 
that the narrative, like, and that's why we draw the narrative away from results, because, you know, if that, if that's the narrative, if that ends up being the why, that always ends in disaster, always, eventually. And it's just a question of when. And so sometimes it can work for a really long time. And those people, I think, would, would say, you know, would call BS on this. And, that, you know, maybe they're an exception, but usually it's just a, it's a ticking time, Mom. Megan, before we run out of time, I, I want to pick on you a little bit. Yeah, sure. Go for it. I like um, it. So I think, <laughs> I, I think in the book, you kind of describe being very motivated, even as a young child and all the way through yes. now. And I think David earlier had mentioned that you're working on your PhD. Yes. <laughs> so, and, she's working for, and she's doing a startup. So a startup that does genetic testing for athletes. Right. And she's doing a fellowship. And she's coaching. And right. So, so, yeah, so, so we have to get to why? <laughs> why? Like, yeah, I mean, you already have your MD. Why why are we why are you doing your PhD? Like what I mean, what's what's the why behind the kind of path that you've taken? Yeah, so it's both, I think it's probably both like intuition based. Like that is honestly what lights my soul on fire and both practical based. So I'll start with intuition. Like I honestly just love learning. Like I love being in the classroom. I love like learning. I love challenging myself. And school is a very convenient environment for that. And in a PhD, you actually get to get paid and go to school. So for me, it's like a dream job. And I'm doing research related to running. So it's it's kind of all synergistic in terms of right. like the things I love. It supports the, the athletes. Like the information that I'm learning in the PhD directly supports SWAP, which is really fun. And then I think from a practical standpoint, so I went to med school thinking that I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I got into med school and very quickly realized that 100 hour work weeks were just not my jam. Like I am happiest when I have time to be out in nature, when I'm running on the trails, when I have time to spend with loved ones with Addy Dog and going on to do residency and like clinically practicing medicine was just not conducive for that. Um, and that was where like the PhD just made so much more logistical sense. Okay. Yeah. I, it's always just curious like how people take these paths because you know, you know, I guess I'll say as children, I'm oversimplifying, but you know, as children, when there's we, we have some semblance of thinking like, I'll be a doctor, I'll be an artist. And you, you look at it as, as this almost like linear progression, especially in the case of a doctor, like I'm going to go to high school, graduate high school, then I'm going to college, be pre-med, then I'm going to get into med school, I'm going to do that, then I'm going to do rent. Like it's, it's very laid out. But often, especially for people like you guys, myself as well, life kind of wiggles and waggles and it isn't quite as straight as you think it's going to be. Well, Michelle Obama, actually, she's her book is so good, but she talks about the power of swerving in a career and in life. And I feel like my life has very much swerved to mm -hmm. kind of fit around what I find the most joy in, like what my like base core priorities are. And I think it's really helpful to like, to like know this base core priorities and make all of your decisions surrounding that. So like for me, it's like, I want to run, I want to spend time with family. I want to do these things that I enjoy. And, and so it's like work has to fit within that framework and I'm going to swerve work around so that it, so that it actually works out. Yeah. Well, thanks for answering. As I said, it was, it was a personal curiosity, but I had to ask before we, before we ran it. <laughs> Thank you. No, that's awesome. Um, this is the question that I ask everybody. You may, guys may have seen if you know you watch the other episodes, but I, I like to ask everybody because this is a universal. If after a hard workout or a hard race, you are choosing a recovery food and you can only choose one food for the rest of your life, what do you choose? Food for recovery. This is a great, great question. I would probably go with pepperoni pizza. This is why we're married. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even plan this ahead of time. Did, that should... We should, okay, that bigger question is, is like, where would you get your pepperoni pizza from? Because we've had a lot of pepperoni pizza well, in life. Well, Legends Pizza. Yeah, let, so, we, we go to this place called Legends. It's in Cupertino, and they've got some other places in California. But literally, when you lift the pizza up off the pan, it has, like, a cheese vertical. So, like, you can lift the pizza up high, and there's, like, three feet of cheese that's just, like, trailing the pizza as you're lifting it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should yeah. probably do more blood tests to make sure our cholesterol is all good. <laughs> no, I think but, sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, th that place is, I think I could do that every meal for the rest of our lives. I totally agree. That's a great, I love people's answers because like I get, I get a mix of like pizza or beer or ice cream. I love ice cream. Um, and then also get like, like the PC answers, like something with four to one carb to protein ratio. Like it's just, I love seeing everybody's different answers. I'm hoping, 
I don't know that I'll put it into a book, but I am eventually going to like compile everybody's like answers into something, maybe an infographic or something. Kind of see. I'll, I'll just do like personality tests and then like food answers and get to like match them. Like I feel like you could really predict that. Yeah. Yeah. Might be a good way to to see if we're if like we aren't for someone is like <laughs> yeah, you say celery probably not going to love us. <laughs> probably not the best match. And like protein and carb ratios. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're just all about like the cheese ratio. That's yeah. Like yeah. The one ratio we got. That's how we judge all foods. It yeah. ends up being a little weird, but yeah. <laughs> okay, guys. Um, so if people want to find you, find out more about Swap, pick up the book. Obviously, where can they do all that? Probably the most important place is Addie Dog herself. So Addie has a big vo uh, voice in the book. She's our furry dog friend. Yep. Um, and so her Instagram handle, which is also David's Instagram handle, is Addie Does Stuff. Um, I am Meg Runs Happy on Instagram. The book's on Amazon. Our website is Swap Running. And that's it. We're generally Googleable. Yeah. Googleable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and our email's out there. And so if anyone's listening and ever has a question about literally anything, um, even if it's like has nothing to do with coaching or anything like that, we'd always like to try to help and answer and um, yeah, get to meet you. Sounds awesome. Thanks for spending some time with me today and allowing me to prod you guys a little bit. This was so fun. You're so amazing. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Take care.